0: Welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven and our state tick. Luke Bronin, the mayor of Hartford, wants to make New Haven and Connecticut tick. He's exploring, quote-unquote, term of art, a run for the 2018 Democratic nomination for governor. And he's here in the studio to give us a preview of what he has planned that campaign. Welcome, Luke Bronin. Nice to meet you, Thanks, man. Thanks, Paul. Good to be with you. How are things in uh, Hartford?
1: All's good. All's good. You yeah. know, we, we uh, It's never dull. But a lot of good stuff going on. But it's nice to be here today. You know, I'm just a couple of blocks away from where I used to live. Uh, right at Yale. My, not just at Yale, but my wife and I were over on Olive Street uh, for about three years. Oh, that's uh, nice. Right, right, right above uh, Louisa Deloro. We were in the apartment uh, right above oh, Louisa okay. for three years.
0: okay. Okay. And she yeah. made sure you voted every year in November, <laughs> I'm sure. Right. <laughs> All right. So, so how's... Um, so did you ever see The Wire when De- Carchetti becomes I, mayor? I did. And he has that famous scene where he talks with the guy he took over from. The mayor had been there forever. And they're sitting in a luncheonette and eating a bowl of soup. And um, he, he, quote, he uses the word Donald Trump uses, um, the old mayor I, says. I remember the scene. They'll be, first, first be mayor, the first guy walks in, you get a bowl of SHIT, then you got to eat that. And then the next one comes in, it's another bowl, it's another bowl, and then Carchetti loses his appetite. Is that what Mayor Hartford's like?
1: No. Uh, look, there's, there's been lots of challenges. There's no question about it. I, know I came in at a time when we faced, uh, first of all, an unprecedented fiscal crisis, uh, and second of all, uh, a big mess at a ballpark <laughs> that we had to clean up. Uh, so there were a lot of messes that we had to clean up. Uh, But at the same time, you know, I think we've been able to do that uh, with a a different level of transparency and directness and honesty than than had been the case in the city for a long time. We've been able to move the ball way down the field towards fiscal stability. And at the same time, I think we've been able to help cultivate and and nurture a real revitalization. You know, you can feel a different level of energy and activity in the city uh, now than has been for a long time. We've got a long way still to go. uh, But uh, I love this job, and I'm proud of what we've been able to do for the last couple of
0: years. So Chris, you love the job. You've done it for only two years. while you are already running for governor?
1: Sure. Well, to me, that's an easy one. You know, I, I think there is no question that uh, having fought the battle towards stability over the last couple of years and, and done the work of laying the groundwork for revitalization, there's no question that that requires having a partnership uh, and having a partner in a governor's office who gets it, who understands why you've got to have a strong capital city. If you're going to have a strong state of Connecticut and more than that understands you've got to have strong cities. If you're going to have strong regions, you know, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that, that I've been uh, not just working on in Hartford, but I've been uh, evangelizing as much as I can. You know, I did a town hall uh, tour last year uh, for all of the suburbs around the city of Hartford that was focused on the message of why everybody needs Connecticut to have strong, vibrant urban centers.
0: You know, why is that? I mean, well, the jobs aren't all in cities anymore. It's true, the culture life's there. You know, we support the not-for-profit institutions. This is why we in cities are always saying the state should reimburse us more for payments and taxes. But do we really, I mean, a lot of people who live in suburbs felt they didn't have to be in a city. How do you convince Uh, them?
1: Look, they don't have to live in a city. And I don't think everybody wants to live in a city.
0: But I do think
1: that uh, a lot of people, especially younger people and talent that a lot of employers, big and small, are looking to recruit, they want to have access to cities. They want to have access to strong, vibrant cities. They may still want to live in a suburb. But they want to have that hub of energy and activity and, in fact, the, and the innovation head of nearby. Said
0: the way he went, he went to New York because he wanted to live there. The, and when uh, they went to Boston, GE went right? to Boston. GE and said the same said thing. He wanted to be around that kind of um, but you don't have excitement to just, and education and talent e- pool.
1: That's exactly right. But you don't have to just you know, take, take the, the heads of Aetna or GE uh, at, at, as the only examples. Look around the country at the places that are beating us in the competition for growth and for jobs. Everywhere you look, that growth is being driven by cities. But when it happens, it lifts up the entire state. You know, we have Mm, a a strong new haven. This isn't about cities versus suburbs. It's about lifting up cities for the sake of having stronger suburbs and small towns alike. You know, you can't have a strong Guilford or a strong Madison if you don't have a strong new haven. Just mm-hmm. like you can't have a strong Manchester or a strong Simsbury if you don't have a strong Hartford. But when the and, rubber
0: meets the road, the legislation, Luke, because you've been working at municipal level, and in fact, is a suburban versus city fight, whether it's about affordable housing laws or allocation of precious, precious resources or the whole reason we had a state ruling that our education formula is broken is because to pass a budget, they had to take money from Bridgeport Schools and give them to Westport, which, besides being sick, just shows how things have really worked at the Capitol for so long. So while I'm not disagreeing with you, that you need strong cities for strong suburbs. That's not the way the suburbs have seen it at the legislature.
1: But I think that's starting to change, and it's going to take leadership. But, but that was just two years ago. It. That vote on the on the schools. Uh, over the last couple of years, you know, I talked about that town hall tour that we did uh, in the in the greater Hartford region. Uh, I actually think there's been a a broader, increasingly broad recognition of why having a strong capital city matters to the region around it, and uh, and I think we need that same kind of message. Uh, coming from the governor of the state of Connecticut. You know, I, w- I would be talking about why we have to have strong, vibrant cities if we want to compete for growth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I deeply believe that's true. You know, uh, look, at, uh, look just north to Massachusetts. You know, it was not that long ago that uh, people were dismissing Massachusetts as taxachusetts. And, right. you know, we were beating them in the competition for jobs and growth. And today that's turned around. But it's not because Western Mass is doing great. It's not because... Uh, you know, uh, it's Boston. It's Boston. MIT, it's being driven by Boston. Kevin. And we don't have to have, uh, we don't have to be uh, a place that has a Boston or a New York City. Uh, but we do have incredibly strategic geography. Well, We're do located have, we do have between New Haven. the two of them. Yeah. New Haven is, I think, our, our best example of a city that's gained strength. Uh, but I think we could do more. Uh, and I think, you know, the other thing that I, I would say that we need to do is, is focus hard on transportation. Uh, And by the way, I've been uh, talking for for a long time and and out there on the stump talking about the fact that it may be controversial in some places, but I think we are absolutely crazy to be one of the few states on the eastern seaboard that doesn't have tolls. Mm -hmm. And with the revenue that you can get from doing tolls, you can make some significant improvements.
0: What kind of revenue?
1: The estimates, uh, well...
0: I hear them all over the place. Yeah,
1: I I do too. And so I I think the answer that probably depends on where you put them, what you charge. Do you so do congestion there is no, prices to there exempt no the people one, who live in the towns that.
0: around them? And would you be for that exempting the people, let's say, who live in Greenwich from a Greenwich toll? I actually
1: that? don't think you can legally exempt uh, people based on uh, from, from tolls that are on uh, interstate highways. But mm-hmm. I think what you can do, and what some states, I believe Rhode Island does, is provide competitive pricing uh, for in-state transponders. So if you're buying, you know, a Connecticut Easy Pass. That you okay. can get a cheaper uh, rate. What oh, about but,
0: congestion pricing when it's busier? Charge more. I
1: think it's something we, sh- we should look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, a huge amount of the traffic that comes through Connecticut is just coming through Connecticut. It's not Connecticut traffic. We got a lot of interesting mm-hmm. traffic. We got a lot of commercial And it's traffic. paying
0: at Massachusetts and New York.
1: And it's paying it in every state, you know, almost every state up and down the eastern seaboard. And we lose out on that revenue. But, you know, I've also seen estimates for what it would take to upgrade the New Haven rail line from new haven to new york you know six to seven billion dollars uh to make a dramatic improvement in both the quality and the speed of that service
0: what about buses they stay in new haven well let me just finish if you make
1: that investment uh you can transform new haven i think but you can also have an incredibly transformative impact on places like bridgeport or norwalk and every community along that line
0: buses are broken in new haven luke i don't know if you know this but the routes are all based on where people worked yes. and the time they worked in the 1950s. So after 5, 5.30, you can't get reliable bus service. If you sometimes travel two miles, you have to go two hours or more to get to a job, let's say, it's Southern. Um, it was based on a time when no one worked past five and no one went out at night. Yes. Governor, Your, your former boss, Governor Lloyd, said, well, then just leave work earlier. And his administration has spent six years doing a study that isn't done yet about how to improve the roles. They spent four years getting a GPS system on buses that still doesn't work to tell you if they're late, why would you be any different in terms of fixing the buses in New Haven?
1: Well, it's not just New Haven. Look, I, in, in Hartford, um, we have similar problems. We've got you know some buses and some bus routes that are max capacity and beyond, and then you've got some bus routes where there's nobody traveling on them. Um, uh, I, I think we have to, it starts with, acknowledging that that's an issue that is not just a matter of convenience but it's a matter of economic development and opportunity. I think
0: there've been at least 12 to 15 press conferences in the last few years from the governor's staff at the train station for Fairfield County commuters. There's not been a single one in 8 years for bus riders who basically delivered his margin of victory.
1: Yeah. Uh, I I think buses are really important. Look, I'll give you this example, you know, uh, the vast majority of uh, I I bet this is true in New Haven too, but the vast majority of uh, folks inside of the City of Hartford actually work outside the city of Hartford. Yeah. Uh, and well, that's the other big issue here. In a lot, lot of New Haveners, a lot of especially cities. on
0: weekends, the bus doesn't even run. Exactly. And, they and it's want hard to, get to do it after. West you know, Haven or North Haven. And yeah. you
1: can't get from New Haven to by, by train. You can't get to New Haven uh, anywhere uh, north after 5 p.m. Mm. So, you know, you've got to look at the whole suite of public transportation options. And I think it is important to look at that as an economic development issue. It's about opening up labor uh, market possibilities. It's about allowing for people to reach the jobs that they can... Uh, That they can uh, get that are out there Uh, and it's about tying our our towns and communities closer together and also opening up access to those big metro regions around you know the last thing uh, just on this point about transportation people are being priced out of New York and Boston every single day this to me is one of the biggest strategic opportunities we have as a state we're a state with incredible quality of life a great place to raise your family I think great small cities that we need to make greater and stronger and more vibrant but if we do that, and if we make the investments necessary to connect us more closely to those big metro areas, I think you will see the impact in growth fairly quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. And we see some of that in New Haven. Market rate right. right apartments are being built without subsidies for the first time in my lifetime. That's right. And you're, talk- you're listening to Luke Bronin. He's the mayor of Hartford. He's also exploring, right? That's the technical term you haven't right. officially declared. A candidacy for governor, Democratic nomination, governor in 2018, Andrea Hardy writes in on Facebook. Thank you for listening, Andrea. Mayor, I think it is great you are in New Haven participating in this program. Please consider doing this somewhat regularly in Hartford. A little dig at you there. Do you, do you not do this in Hartford?
1: I I, uh, I actually do. Uh, I First of all, I do a town hall uh, once a month. I've had at least one, in many cases more, uh, every single month uh, that I've been mayor. Uh, and uh, I also am on uh, a couple of uh, radio stations on a regular basis, one uh, of them at least once a month. Uh, so uh, I do Welcome the opportunity, and I'll go on any show that wants to have me, but I do I do, do it on a regular basis. <laughs> and you are basis.
0: here today, WNHH, yeah. <laughs> um, and thanks for the comment Andrew. answer. So Luke Bronin, it sounds to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, that maybe a key pitch you're going to be making about why Luke, is, everyone's running for governor, huge, huge feel on both sides, especially the Republican side. It sounds to me like one pitch you're making is that you came into Hartford, the budget was broken, you had a corruption scandal with building a ballpark, you feel you did a good job, straightening it out in two years, and that's the skill set needed. In Hartford, where we've had persistent budget deficits as high as $2.5 billion, they never go away every quarter when new revenue estimates come in, that you need a similar kind of approach. Is that an accurate description of how you're pitching yourself? That's
1: a part of it. There's no question. And I think, you know, look... we haven't solved every problem in Hartford and you don't solve every problem in Hartford. You know, you don't solve any problem in any state or in any city, you know, in a two year period or even a four year period. It's not about, you know, finishing the term. It's about finishing the job. And all of this work is, is a relay race where you gotta, you know, it takes sustained effort. Uh, but what I do think uh, I can say is I think I would be the only candidate, uh, on either side, uh, in this field, who folks who are either exploring or running. Uh, and as you say, I'm, I'm right now exploring, uh, but I'd be the only one who actually has a record of facing a fiscal crisis that's arguably bigger than what the state of Connecticut is. Well,
0: Mike Handler says he's done that in Stanford. He worked for both Democratic and Republican governors as the chief financial well, officer and got rid of long-standing pension arrangements he thought were bankrupting the city and got the unions to sign on to him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd say two things. One, with all respect to Mike, uh, the city of Stanford was actually in pretty good shape uh, they didn't have anything that could come close uh, to be to, to being uh, you know e- even in the same uh, so ballpark. So how did, how did <laughs> you do it? How, as, what did you Hartford. do in Hartford but, to address it? But let me so that, that's where I'm going to go. The first thing is about uh, the fact that you are transparent and open and honest about it. You know, we'd had a structural problem for a long time. the The city of Hartford's challenge is rooted in the fact that half of the property in the city is non taxable. And it's a small city to start with, you know, 17 square miles, uh, roughly, half of the property non-taxable, a tax base that's actually uh, much smaller, not only than New Havens, but much smaller than West Hartford's uh, and about the same size as small towns like Farmington. So it just, it's a structure that's built to fail. And so one of the things that we did was, look, we're not going to do the things that were done in the past to just kick the can, you know, selling assets, pushing out debt a little bit we're going to recognize that a, this crisis is a real crisis. And success is not buying another year, buying a little bit of reprieve. So success Republicans say you got to do it by talent.
0: paying lower pensions and making them 401Ks and cutting health care to make it more like the private sector. Is that the way to do it? Is that what you're doing in Harvard? I,
1: I think Republicans are being a little bit disingenuous because on the state level, as you know, the vast majority of the pension obligation that we pay we're is actually going Roland. to is it was was accrued under Roland and Rel, With but also wrestling. is already uh, is for those who have already retired, mm-hmm. and that you can't do that through negotiation. But let me just come back to the other point about you know you mentioned about Handler, um, and I don't know what 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 they've done down there, but I'll tell you is through negotiation at the negotiating table, we were able to get uh, some of the most significant. Labor deals done that I think you'll find anywhere in the state of Connecticut in the last 25 years. You know these are really significant structural reforms that saved millions of dollars in the near term, but also made structural changes. For what's, the long some, term.
0: what's some of what unions agreed to get up, and what did they get in return? We
1: we had. Uh, I'll give you an example from our, our firefighters union. I give them an enormous amount of credit, as I do all of the uh, the the uh, municipal unions that stepped up to be a part of this. Uh, four years of zero wage increases. Uh, significant increase in pension contributions for the firefighters. It was upwards of around 50% increase in their pension contributions, uh, a structural change uh, in healthcare shifting from a PPO over to a, a high deductible with an HSA, um, dramatic reforms to uh, long-term uh, liabilities, both by changing the pension formula, uh, including by the way for active employees, not just for new employees and, uh, changing uh, retirement, uh, retiree health care, and in many cases, eliminating subsidized retiree health care. Look, these, are, these, were, these were serious, were reforms. Why did they agree reforms. to that? Uh, for one thing, we did the work of actually demonstrating just how deep this challenge was. And, you know, it's important to me. But every
0: candidate says that, I'm going to get the table and show, open the book, show them what it's like, so we're going to f- solve it together. What was the difference here?
1: I think one difference was uh, I had a very public discussion uh, about all the range of options, and and I made clear that we were not going to fake it this time, and so we had a very public discussion and a very serious preparation for the possibility of bankruptcy. You know, which was, as you know, heightened by the fact that the state of Connecticut didn't have a budget until, right. uh, you know, until many months into the fiscal year.
0: So it was the bankruptcy threat that was hanging over their heads. Well,
1: I, I don't know that it was that because we got the firefighters deal done nine months before that, uh-huh. but we did the work. I, in many different forms around the table but also those town halls going around uh, and and talking to all of the towns around the city about why the challenge was there and why it mattered to everybody and you know i think at the end of the day uh, our our labor unions stepped up and they stepped up in a big way but it's also important to say that they're not the only ones that we asked to step up you know we built a, a partnership and reengage some of our biggest employers and three of the biggest insurance companies uh, agreed to be part of that fiscal solution, you know, saying that they would uh, put $10 million a year on the table in addition to the taxes. How do that you they transfer pay.
0: that to a state level with a $40 billion two-year budget? Do you get what remains of our rapidly disappearing insurance industry to pony up money to the state? I mean, they usually fight paying money to the state in taxes. What are, is this a transferable tactic
1: well, what I think, so you just said, our rapidly dwindling insurance industry. I actually don't think that's a fair characterization because they keep you know, a lot of the employees um, here, even when the they move the headquarters. Employees are here. You know, yeah. CVS has recently said that they're keeping Aetna's insurance uh, operations uh, headquartered in, uh, mm-hmm. in in Hartford, and Connecticut. But but it's not just that. You know, one of the things that we did in uh, over the past couple of years in Hartford is is work with uh, our employers, again big and small, to try to build public private partnerships for job growth in the future. So five of our insurance companies actually came together uh, unprecedented public private partnership uh, and launched an insure tech accelerator where they are working to identify and invest in the most promising technology companies that they think could transform the insurance industry in the next generation. They've been doing that work in Silicon Valley for many years. They're now doing it in our capital city. And the same thing is now true of, of Stanley Black and Decker, you know, a, national leader in advanced manufacturing, a company that's been in Connecticut for 175 years. We've been working with them for the last year and talking with them uh, about making the same kind of investment commitment. And they just uh, announced that they are launching an advanced manufacturing center of excellence in the capital city and that they are launching their own accelerator where they're going to be identifying, investing in, and supporting promising Te- so, that's something that
0: transfers statewide about working with employees to advance technology. And re yes. them in
1: growth. Because the reality is look, w- there's no question we're going to have tough choices no matter who's in the governor's office. There's going to be a need for continued dif- discipline and very difficult choices. And I'm no stranger to tough choices, uh, I'm willing to make them. But what's going to decide whether we actually win- succeed or fail here is whether we position the state for growth. And so, I talked a little bit about you know, needing vibrant, strong cities, we talked a little bit about transportation. But the other thing we have to do is create those jobs uh, that will uh, result in growth and new revenue to the state down the road and I do think we have a huge opportunity you know I, the the kind of uh, innovation that I just talked about you know working together public and private partnerships to to make sure that we are creating an environment where startups and technology firms see Connecticut as a hospitable place to be uh, and and that our employers what would you are do different from them?
0: Dan Malloy, he did his first five. Look,
1: I, I don't think we've, that's just about, you know, that's just about granting money. First five was about granting money to employers to, to stay, you know, or to come. Uh, but what I'm talking about is building those partnerships that are focused on the future growth, future job growth. You know, we have, so they would the, argue that a, gr- that
0: a company that's starting to make it be moved by other states is the kind of company that will have the future job growth. And we got There's that with no, Lexion. They, they added I, hundreds of jobs in months, yeah. then they pulled them out and took them to Massachusetts.
1: Yeah, so what I'm saying is, you know, we're, look, we're, you're always going to have wins, you're going to have losses. But go back to these accelerators that I'm talking about with you know, either in advanced manufacturing or in uh, short tech. Uh, when you get those 20 companies that are starting in Connecticut, that are starting in part because they have a partnership with the companies they want to be working with, uh, and they grow up rooted here, yeah, you mm-hmm. may lose some of them. Maybe you even lose 15 of them. But if five of them stay and have strong growth, you're growing jobs that really matter. And let me lo- give you an, another example of, of the kind of thing that, we, that I think we ought to be doing. There is huge need and huge demand for, uh, for jobs in coding and computer science. You know, In, in, in 20, 2015, I don't know the data for this year, but in 2015, there were 6,500 jobs in coding uh, open in this state. And yet, statewide, we graduated 400 graduates in computer science. Mm. And by the way, the average salary in those jobs was ninety six thousand dollars. Mm. So we're missing huge opportunities. To and how would you ta- ta- how would growth. you
0: that would you do more job training? Would you do more education? Well, with our tech?
1: with our state and uni- college and university systems, and with UConn, I, I would do much more than that. I would say we need to focus on computer science uh, as a. a, a uh, a program that we are really working to grow. Uh, and the same thing's true at the at the secondary school level. You know, pe- we ought to be preparing our students uh, to lay the groundwork so that when they get to college, either community college or four-year college, that they are able to, they've got a foundation uh, in, in computer science and they can really uh, grow into those roles. Uh, I. I think that is an enormous opportunity that we're missing, and I would focus very hard on that. Now, right, I just want to there's catch one other up with industry. Of, I want to catch oh, sure. up
0: a little with some of our listeners. and remind you that you're listening to Luke Bronin, Mayor Hartford, and candidate, well, exploratory candidate, quote-unquote, for governor in 2018 for the great nominations here at WNHH's Dateline New Haven. and Thanks, folks, for writing in. Tricia Brookhard writes in, Alexian is keeping over 450 jobs in New Haven. Point well taken. I mean, they had doubled that, and now they got it back down there. She also said, I have 10 IT jobs open at Conica Minolta in Windsor, exclamation point. So if you're way back to Hartford, you know, 10 people on IT yeah. jobs, you want to get them hooked up. Trisha Brookhart, you'll find her on our Facebook page. But I
1: think Trisha's point is exactly the, the point that I'm trying to make. There are jobs open. There are jobs open in IT. There are jobs open in, in, in uh, coding. We are not building the partnerships with those employers to prepare students for those jobs. Uh, The same thing is true in the advanced manufacturing sector. You know, if you look at Electric Boat uh, down in uh, Southeast Connecticut, you look at Pratt & Whitney, uh, I bet it's true over at Sikorsky, uh, and and then all the supply chain, by the way, that feeds those companies. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands of jobs that we know are going to be created because they work with long-term contracts. They can project that growth with a lot of certainty but we are not preparing students well enough to take those jobs. You know, right. A lot of those companies don't do on-the-job training anymore. We have to build our, uh, our Votech system, our community college system, our state college, university system, so that they are feeding uh, those jobs with students that are prepared to do them. And by the way, when you do that, it also means students are getting jobs that allow them to pay off uh, their bills and uh, make college more affordable.
0: All right, we've got a few people writing in. First, Trish is following up. Thank you. And gave her, if you want to go to the New Haven Independent Facebook page and look at this video, Trish has an email, part of a local Connecticut recruiting firm. And you'll see her email there if you'd like to apply for the job or get someone there. and your Hardy just followed up. Town halls are hard to attend during the week. Right now, I'm in the office working while listening to you. If this were done once a month in Hartford, please have it advertised somewhere. I know many in my circle did not know about it. And we are not going to tell Andrea's boss that he's listening to us because we're appreciating <laughs> that he's listening appreciate. to Dateline New Haven. Tom but, Breen writes in, I'm sorry if you've already answered this question, but do you think that it is a disservice to Hartford voters for their mayor to leave office two years into his first four-year term? Then they elect you because you promised to help realize a specific vision for their city.
1: So let me let me answer Andrea first. So I assume Andrea, you're watching this on Facebook Live. Uh, if you are, we put most of our town halls on Facebook Live too. Uh, so I encourage you to go watch them. Uh, we'd love to have you be part of it, uh, and uh, and I keep into that at least once a month, uh, and and welcome you as it. Um, I forget the name of the second caller, Tom. Tom. Uh, so we did answer that uh, Tom a little bit at the at the start, um, uh, and to me, it's very simple. Uh, we have. Oh, Andrea is the boss, by the way.
0: Oh. All All right, Andrew, keep watching. i not in
1: trouble, (laughs) Um, know, Tom, uh, I believe very strongly that the state of Connecticut needs to have a strong capital city. Uh, And over the past two years, we've done uh, some of the really hard work of facing an unprecedented fiscal crisis, uh, doing it openly, transparently, boldly, and getting far down the path towards stability. But the real goal is vibrancy and strength. And if we want to get there, I don't think there's any question that... I can do more for that mission as governor than I can as mayor. Um, and I, uh, I think that far from uh, breaking that promise, it may be the best way to fulfill that promise. But wait a um, second. But, but his point is,
0: is, is, though, is that they elected you to be the mayor. They didn't elect you to be the governor. And there they, are some people say, can't you at least finish? You, you said the job's never done, but can't you at least put the four years you promised them before you move on to the next thing?
1: I think that this state is at a crossroads right now. And what happens in Connecticut in the next two or four years is going to decide what happens in Connecticut for the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, And uh, I have strong feelings about what we need to do to get the state on the right track to be growing again. And if we don't do that, I don't think it matters what we do at the local level. And that's not just about Hartford. That's true of almost all of our communities and towns. Uh, So I have strong convictions about what we need to do in this state. The other thing I would say is, you know, I feel really strongly that at this moment in American history, we all have an obligation to say, how can, you know, where can we do the most? And I I shudder at the thought of turning the state of Connecticut over uh, to the party of Donald Trump.
0: And do you feel uh, that what's important is Luke Bronin is the guy who can make the Democrats win as opposed to some of the other one, people in the field?
1: One thing that I do is, think is important uh, is uh, is letting a new generation of Democrats step up.
0: You mean when Howard Dean was right when he said baby boomers like himself gotta finally shut themselves off the stage and let I don't think it's about the shut, take over. I don't think it's
1: about shuttling themselves off the stage, but you got a lot of a lot of younger Democrats, including myself, who, you know, were inspired to public service by Barack Obama. You know, I worked uh, in the Obama administration for the first four years of the Obama administration, um, who've uh, who have uh, strong beliefs about what really makes this country great and who have already a depth of experience to make the changes necessary. And I think it's time to, to pass the torch, as President Kennedy said, you know, pass the torch to new generations. Let me generations. just finish
0: up so we can get out of the way of this whole thing about Harvard. The last question you always ask is, okay, you went there for two years. You said, hey, we're going bankrupt. So the state gave you $40 million. Why is that, a, actually, how's that a recipe accurate. for... Fixing the state to just have you spend send more money.
1: Well, that's not actually accurate. I mean, so w- what we did first of all, our our gap, and we could spend hours talking about why the city was in this in this mess, and we talked a little bit about it with the the lack of taxable property. Uh, but the other problem was that my predecessor had pushed out debt payments, so we had. Mm-hmm. Debt payments that rose from $10 million when I took over to $60 million per year in 2021 but you without about borrowing su- other You talked about suburbs, Wait. Luke, but they hate that. They say, Wait, but let me so answer. you
0: guys didn't pay your debt and all of a sudden we're supposed to pay the bill for that.
1: You're right. They do hate it. But the reality is that we were all in the same boat. And so we didn't just solve this in one way. You know, This is a, a gap that was rising to $70, $80 million wow. a couple years from now. And so we made significant changes. Right, the in money labor came contracts. with strings. You'd have to have the labor me, concessions to get the forty million. It. No, that that yeah. that also is not exactly right. Let me okay. let me answer it. So, <laughs> we first of all uh, made significant changes in our labor uh, in our labor obligations and did it around the negotiating table. We also uh, made some dramatic changes and cuts to city government, which were painful to do. But we reduced almost twenty million dollars of expenditure that first year. Uh, and that wasn't cutting fat. That was making some very, very hard choices. You know, our non-public safety personnel uh, are down almost 25% over the last few years. It was really tough changes. Uh, we also uh, engaged our largest taxpayers and, you know, our three biggest insurance companies – for them to be a part of that solution, so you're saying and you didn't we just take the, the state, money, you made and we went to the state. That's but right. you still but got say, forty million no, dollars. Didn't. This is where I was, we okay. never we have not gotten forty million dollars. What we got, which is more important than that, is we got the authority to work with the state on a debt restructuring that would make it possible not just to close the gap this year, but to be able to project stable budgets for the foreseeable future. So what's the forty so million? There is no forty million dollar. Uh, amount that the legislature approved, or that we got what they did is they set up a uh, an accountability board that statewide by the way west havens uh, you know uh, under it as well and and others will be uh... that has a certain amount of money twenty eight million dollars to administer statewide and then they also had uh... put twenty million dollars uh, of authorization on the debt service side to participate in the debt restructuring but what's important here is that the roots of this problem uh, no one's saying you created the no, problem. No, no, I'm not saying But yeah. it can be traced to the fact that the state has not built a structure that can succeed. You cannot have a stable city with half of its property non taxed. But New Haven
0: has this half its property non taxed. We have cut city government. We restructured some debt. We didn't need a bailout from the state. Why did you guys need it?
1: Your, your tax base is almost twice New Haven, uh, so twice Hartford's. We have have half our property is untaxable. But but it's not just about the percentage. It's also about what's the value of the part that's taxable. So you have a tax base of about $7 billion. Taxable tax base. Mm -hmm. The city of Hartford has a tax base of $4 billion. Uh, Your property tax rate is at 38. uh, Ours was at 74. And I obviously couldn't, couldn't raise that and wouldn't raise that. But this is the most important thing. There were multiple partnerships required to get us on that path to stability. And the reason we were able to do it is because for the first time in a long time, we were able to demonstrate a discipline of leadership that people could have confidence in and a transparency about the problem that people could trust.
0: Okay. Well, you're talking to, you're hearing Luke Bronin, Mayor Hartford, exploratory candidate for governor as a Democrat in 2018 on WNHH's Dateline New Haven at 103.5 FM live streams at newhaven.org. Folks, thanks for sending in your comments and questions. Kate Rosen asks, please ask the mayor what kind of support Southern Connecticut cities could expect if he were to be the governor and what he would do differently than the current governor for Southern Connecticut cities. Thank you.
1: Sure. Uh, so, you know, even over the last two years, I've been talking about all of our cities. I think we as a state need to have strong, vibrant cities uh, because we have regions that are built around those cities and whether that's Stamford or Norwalk or Bridgeport or New Haven or Waterbury or new London, uh, we have to put those cities in a position to be strong, active, energetic, vibrant hubs. That's how you're going to grow this state. Um, the second thing is, you know, what we talked about before, transportation. I can't think of anything more powerful uh, for the southern Connecticut cities than uh, upgrading our rail line in a way that connects us more closely to each other and more quickly to new york
0: now we already are making some of those upgrades and in fact from new haven to bridgeport we're going to start i mean new haven to hartford we're going to start having 17 trains a day
1: yeah but it's not about the number of trains it's about the speed yeah the part and, and the isn't of of some service. of that almost impossible
0: because think... many of Harp has talked about wanting to have that one hour train in new york and we're told that there are certain spots along the tracks in fairfield county that just be prohibitively expensive to fix it
1: depends what you mean by prohibitively expensive i think that if we had tolls mm-hmm. that that's a, a, a investment that we could uh, that we could do and right. I think it is an investment that would pay off uh, hugely, uh, not just over the long run, but even in the pretty immediate term, in terms of the uh, the amount of investment that would draw to the state of Connecticut.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot for that question, Kate Rosen. And um, so what I wanted to do, Luke Bronin, was do you have quite a biography? You're definitely a biography candidate, and I wanted to ask you um, to stop along certain parts of that biography and tell me how you're tell me something about the experience there that will lend give you a good lesson for how to be a good governor okay you start you studied at phillips exeter academy an elite boarding school what did you learn there that will help you be a good governor
1: <laughs> i i don't know uh I mean, what anybody learned in school you know i um
0: do you remember a teacher taught you something or something that happened yeah look I was, I was
1: lucky to have great teachers uh you know my i was lucky to have parents who were the best teachers that i had
0: um, or Yale Law you School. Know, you went to math. Yale Law School. Was there a teacher there, or a classmate, a connection you made, or a moment, something you learned in class, or something that happened on a I was not campaign as, you're on?
1: I was not as dedicated a law student I should have been. Uh, when I was in law school, you know, my my second year, uh, I actually enjoyed law school. And I did work hard, but but I also uh, was was politically active. Uh, you know, when I was. Uh, my my first involvement in a campaign was managing Andrew McDonald's uh, state oh, senate campaign in 2004. Who's now the, uh, was uh, nominated for chief oh, justice, right? The nominee for chief justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court, uh, and at the time it was his 1st reelection. Uh, and uh, you know he went on to uh, be uh, well, he was chairman of the judiciary committee. Was a driving force in making some really important changes in Connecticut and leading the charge towards mar- uh, marriage equality. He was also my successor, my predecessor, rather, as uh, general counsel uh, in the office of the governor. Um, and then, uh, and then I started, um, in 2005, uh, working on the first, uh, Molloy
0: primary right. in 2005. Well, before that, you were, before Scho- that, you were a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah.
1: And before that, I was here back in New Haven, uh, at Yale for college. Um, mm-hmm. and when I was in college, uh, you know, I, uh, one of the things that I did was tutor in the, uh, in the Whaley, uh, Avenue Jail, the, you know, uh, New Haven. Inmates there, the detention center. Pre- the detention center yeah. where I, well, uh, I, I did, uh, some GED training. Uh, I actually taught a poetry class. Oh, yeah? Um, I love the poetry comes out I did there. that for, 30, you know, huh? for, for a few years. Why and poetry? That was a... I, I, you a poet? Loved, well, I, You're no. you I can't claim to be a poet. And I once upon a time, I was an aspiring songwriter. But uh, that aspiration has uh, has
0: probably since withered. Did you play any but, open mics in New Haven?
1: Not uh, Not really. Um, I actually took Dobro lessons with Stacy Phillips. Who was, oh you did? Uh, out he's here, been on you know, here he plays a lot of times. He's yeah, a phenomenal yeah. musician, and Grammy she, winner. Yes, he is. So um, you play Dobro? Well, no, I can't claim to play it. I try. I I I, I took lessons with him, and I uh, I tried, and I love it, but uh, I can't claim. But to be you play any regular guitar? I do.
0: So for the Dobro, you had to put your guitar in your lap, yeah, and and kind of put the slide over the frets, right. And, and uh, you got to raise the strings up. But as a politician, if you, you go from a council to a governor to running a city to running a state, you also have to kind of adjust your skill set, right?
1: Well, also, I've got three little kids. They're oh. eight, six, and four, so I haven't, <laughs> I haven't had a lot of time to, yeah, yeah. to practice, to practice right. my music. What about lately? Naval
0: Reserve? You were assigned to the so, um, anti I mean, me Let me oh, just so. come
1: back for a second to the to the uh, to the Whaley Avenue jail. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was clear to me then that's a lesson that I've taken with me is that um, there were a lot of young men in that, in that jail uh, who had incredible potential, incredible talent, and they were just as smart as uh, as folks who were in my class at Yale. Uh, and is that true? Yeah, you really have, think like I IQ really do think smart. that's okay. true. I really yeah. do think that's true. You know, someone once told me uh, about, uh, about kids in Hartford, and I think this is just as true in New Haven and many of our other cities. Uh, in Connecticut and across the country, uh, there are some of the greatest minds the world will never know. Uh, I believe that's true, and uh, that to me was a really important lesson to learn and a really important experience because uh, I think that uh, a lot of the kids who ended up there could have very easily, with a different experience growing up, with different educational opportunities, with different mentorship, uh, could have gone on to do very, very different things uh, and been tremendously successful. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about second chance society initiatives now. You know, when I oh. ended up in the governor's council's office, that's something that I, I worked a lot on.
0: And what would you do next in that? Bond reform seems to be a big uh, target of people who want to make this. Well, there was fair. a bail
1: reform, uh, you know, act, act passed. Uh, there's also been uh, some discussions about raise the age. But to me, the most important thing we need to do is really focus on, on reentry, uh, on, on, on successful reentry. And that means, number one, making the reentry process uh, the reintegration process, one that begins well before somebody leaves prison. you know, It's got to start uh, that year or so before they leave They talk leave to New prison. Haven of
0: trying to get the you people know. in six months before and come up with a plan for, for how and, they'll get out.
1: And then the second thing uh, is to really engage the private sector employers big and small, to try to get them to think differently about second chances, about what it means to offer a second chance. We've got employers uh, in Hartford that, you know, we've worked with them to promote their story because their story, which is a common one, is when they've made the decision to hire folks who had a criminal record, uh, it doesn't always work out. And usually they know pretty quickly if it's not going to work out. But when it does, they end up with some of the most hardworking, loyal employees they can find because those employees know how hard it was to get that chance. And so I think if we're really going to make a difference here, it's about engaging the private sector and helping to change minds uh, and attitudes about what it means. You see to that second story second in the Times in
0: yesterday that because of labor shortages in certain industries in certain parts of the country, yeah. they, don't have, they, they are willing to hire ex-cons when they weren't in the past. And what about, so you actually were in the Naval Reserve and you were on an anti-corruption task force in Afghanistan. Yep. What, what did you learn from that? Did you take anything away from that?
1: So I did my deployment. That was right in the middle of my time in the Obama administration. Uh, So, you know, it was just after the...
0: And you were working in the Treasury Department. I was working in the
1: Treasury Department. It was right after the the Dodd-Frank Act, the Wall Street Reform Consumer Protection Act passed, which I had been working on. Uh, And I went over uh, to Afghanistan as a naval intelligence officer, uh, but I was assigned to the Anti-Corruption Task Force over there. Um, And, uh, you know, worked with a a tremendous team of people. Uh, You know, obviously a, a... a tough and probably unsolvable a challenge to tackle, uh, but you know one of the things that I learned over there, uh, and I don't know whether it makes me a better leader or not, but one of the things I learned over there is just how uh, how fragile institutions are, uh, and how difficult it is to repair them once they've been damaged. And that's one of the things that scares me most about the Trump administration. I think he's doing some irreparable damage right now. To and you worked, if you worked really on really
0: Dodd-Frank right now, it's in the cross. It's a perfect
1: example. I, I mean, I was part of the team that helped uh, build and create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Which, um, is on the, which he is doing everything well, Manucci, he can now, to, to the destroy. The new Treasury
0: Secretary has taken over with the mission of dismantling it. And now we read this morning that there's pretty much a majority in both houses to undo a lot of the requirements that's that right. banks can't do risky lending. Except for five or ten banks left in the country. What about corruption? So you said you brought, you mentioned But it's not
1: just, I mean, it's not just, you know, issues like financial corruption. It's also just the lack of faith in institutions. You know, one of the things that was so difficult to deal with uh, in in Afghanistan and continues to be in Afghanistan is just the lack of faith in any institution. And so that's why, you know, the, the, the things that Donald Trump is doing to undermine faith in the press, to undermine faith in the judiciary, those are incredibly damaging things that he's doing. Um, and I think we all, uh, of every party, have an obligation to stand up as loudly as we can to speak against that.
0: Okay. And then you also talked about dealing uncorruption corruption when you got to Hartford because of the construction of the baseball stadium. Any parallels to well, yeah, Afghanistan that, that, and Hartford there? That,
1: no. I, look, that wasn't so much corruption uh, as it was incompetence. Uh, you know, the there was a contractor selected on this, uh, this baseball park. I mean, look, in my view... I didn't support the baseball park because I didn't think that it was something the city was in a position to pay for. I don't think there's any questions that, that was true. Uh, but when I took office, uh, just a few days before I took office, we were uh, all informed that the contractor was uh, months behind schedule and tens of millions of dollars over budget. And uh, spent that first six months trying to piece Contract together The used to be in the state
0: legislature and supports a lot of political candidates, but you think that was irrelevant?
1: I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to comment on why he got the contract. Uh, I, I, I don't have any basis for making any, any allegations about why he got the contract. What I do know is he had no experience in building ballparks and his team had no experience in building par- ballparks. And as a result, uh, they were completely unable to deliver on the promises. So we had to make the hard decision of firing them, mm-hmm. of actually going to the surety company, the insurance company, and bringing them to the table. And at the end of the day, we were able to get the ballpark done without, uh, making the taxpayers of Hartford. Uh, you know, pay that price.
0: And finally, now, um, as Roland Lamar, state rep, puts it, the uh, and he thinks this isn't fair, the brand Malloy is broken, that it's toxic, that the Republicans are going to be running against Dan Malloy in this whole campaign, blaming him, fairly or unfairly, for the fiscal situation of the state. You worked for him for his campaign and then for his government as the chief counsel. How Do you feel a need to separate yourself from Malloy? or are you going to say, I'm going to continue the good he did and build on it?
1: Well, let me say, first of all, uh, I think the Republican brand uh, is uh, is rightly uh, as bad as it could possibly be right now. Um, I think what the Republicans and, are saying is I, the
0: only person less popular than Trump in the state right now is Dan Malloy.
1: Well, uh, I, I think that the state of Connecticut uh, is... Overwhelmingly disgusted by what they're seeing out of the Trump administration, and I think uh, the Republicans, especially those who have not been willing to stand up and call him out for the things that he's doing, are going to suffer uh, for it. But I, I look when I was the governor's chief lawyer, you know, I worked on issues that I'm that I'm really proud of. You know, I, I worked on uh, the common sense gun reforms that were put in place. So you're right there Sandy when Hook. Sandy Hook happened. You know, wow, I, I wasn't there when I came hmm. a few weeks after Sandy Hook, but I was there uh, for the effort to pass those really significant common sense gun reforms uh you know i was part of uh, pushing some really important environmental issues and that's a that's a set of issues that are really important to me uh i was helped lay the groundwork for the second chance society uh, legislation uh a push uh to uh make connecticut embrace the goal of ending chronic veterans homelessness um and we actually were the first state in the country to be designated as ending chronic veterans homelessness doesn't mean that there aren't veterans who night don't have right, you no know, right, night tonight right, right, but right. um uh, so those are issues that I'm really proud of, and I'm not going to shy away from those. Uh, at the same time, look, Dan Malloy and I are very different people, uh, and we have very different styles. And, you know, I think um, I have a record uh, as mayor uh, that demonstrates my style, which is one of trying to build partnerships, be very, very you know, open about what we're facing, and try to build partnerships both uh, inside the city, around the city, and with legislatures, legislators uh on both sides of the aisle to get what needs to get done done.
0: Well, Luke Bronan, the last twenty seconds, I want to do a lightning round. Public financing campaign: Would you keep that system in place? Yes,
1: and is I'm it, and I am publicly, you know, I'm, I would be participating in the
0: CEP single payer health insurance.
1: Uh, at the, you know, I support the Medicare for All bill that uh, Chris Murphy uh, is pushing down in Washington.
0: Uh, sanctuary state: Would you continue not? Cooperating with your communities, a,
1: I have been a very proud uh, opponent of the Trump anti-immigration agenda, uh, and keeping Hartford a welcoming city, uh, in not just in our actions in City Hall, but also you know taking on Tucker Carlson on uh, on Fox.
0: Fifteen dollar minimum wage. Uh,
1: I think we need to get Connecticut on the path. You know, I was I was proud that Connecticut was the first state to uh, ad- embrace. President Obama's challenge to get to ten ten minimum wage. Other states have now moved beyond to get on the path to fifteen dollar minimum wage, and we should do that. By the path, do you mean you, you know, want
0: to go for fifteen, but you'd increase it?
1: No, no, I, I want it, I want fifteen to be where we get. You know, but, right. but but uh, it wouldn't happen overnight. But we need to get
0: legalizing there. recreational use of marijuana.
1: I've I've been on record for a long time uh, saying I support uh, regulating taxing recreational marijuana.
0: How does this change now with Jeff Sessions undoing the Obama policy of not prosecuting locally? We don't, marijuana we don't
1: know yet. We don't know yet. You sure hope that the prosecutors here in Connecticut uh, use their prosecutorial discretion uh, wisely.
0: Raising um, the marginal tax rate to 7.5% for incomes over a million or half a million.
1: I think we need to see what the impact of the tax bill that the Republicans just passed, which put Connecticut and other blue states squarely in the crosshairs. Uh, and we may need to be pushing for a much bigger tax overhaul in the state of Connecticut to try to deal with that.
0: Well, I think you might be safe for embarrassing. Oh, no, you're not safe for embarrassment. Luke, I'm going to tell you in a minute why. Luke, Vernon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. And Dateline New It was really great to have you. Great to meet Good you. To be great to hear here. doing in Hartford. And you're seeking the 2018 Democratic Nomination for governor.
1: Exploring for it.
0: And I know that in New Haven, you do already have some support, some uh, pretty prominent support in New Haven. So I know you're going to be in the mix. Um, when do you decide when you stop exploring and you're officially a candidate?
1: I, I don't know yet. You know, it's not that long between here and May. So, uh, you know, probably not that long before decision, but uh, I don't know yet.
0: And thanks, folks, for the comments on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Uh, usually we take it out as we're doing now at the Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How to Be Free. What I'd like to do is take it out with a song by Luke and You okay for that? <laughs>
1: I guess it depends which one. You tell me. We could <laughs> listen
0: to One More Night, Nothing Sweeter, Holy Ghost Town, Rome, Won't Be Long, <laughs> Creation Story, any of those? I won't uh, embarrass you if you'd rather not.
1: You pick whatever you want.
0: All right. So Luke Bronin does not have time to New Yorkers. because he's a father of three young kids. He runs a city. He's uh, exploring a run for governor. But he uh, has. Sweeter. recorded. Sweeter. Try he, that one. Okay. He's run some, written some music. <laughs> this is Paul Bass. Thanking you for joining us on WNHH, your home for community radio. And let's listen to "Nothing Sweeter" from Luke Bronin. This is an ambush. (laughs) Oh nope! You are in luck. I don't have the password from our station (laughs) manager, so we're going to go back to. Okay, next time you come on, we're going to listen to your music. All right, this is Paul Bass saying thanks for listening at uh, WNHH, your home for community radio at one hundred three point five. And Luke Bronin, uh, have a great day. Thank you.